Revelation chapter 7. So as we have talked over this quarantine period about um, chapter 4 and 5 being this uh, opportunity to linger in the courts of the Lord there in heaven, um, now we're going to be in Revelation 7. Now, I say that about chapter 4 and 5, this lingering, this supping with the Lord at his table. He's knocked on the door. We've opened to him, let him in. And then because of the fact that we come in under the blood of the Lamb, in chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation, we're actually caught up and tucked away in heaven. And then from what I believe and as I read, as a simpleton, as I read the book of Revelation, we're tucked away and then the great tribulation uh, begins. Now, in chapter 6 is where the great tribulation oops, began. And we have this... Uh, great tribulation, this time of seven years that's prophesied about in Matthew chapter 24, and then many other scriptures in the Old Testament point to this time. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 6 through 7, talks about this time called the time of Jacob's trouble. And in there, there's this prophecy of not only them being t brought back to Jerusalem from uh, captivity in Babylon, but what you need to know about prophecy is many times there's a near fulfillment where God speaks something to a prophet to those people that are alive at the time where he's going to reveal himself and fulfill it in that day. But also there's a far fulfillment. And in this case, the time of Jacob's trouble refers to this time where Israel has this opportunity in the great tribulation to respond to the love of God, to see all the trouble going on in the world and to respond to his love. So the purposes of the Great Tribulation are found there on the screen for you. To, number one, wake up a nation. To wake up the nation of Israel. To wake them up out of this sleep that they've been in where they missed the Messiah. They're still looking for him today. And yet, because he's already come, they're looking for a Messiah. And on the scene, we saw the first horseman last week. There will be this white horseman that comes in. Of course, he must be the good guy. He's on a white horse. And yet what we find is he's actually the antichrist. He's the instead of Christ. And he will speak with great swelling words and they will believe him because he will promise to bring, bring peace on the earth. And yet what we find in the next three horsemen is that not only will peace not come, but wars will start. And he will have this plan to bring the world to unity and yet, three and a half years into the Great Tribulation, he will claim to be God, he will be in the temple, and he will call out to be worshipped, and then the people of Israel will recognize that they have been duped, that this is not the Messiah, but he's in fact an Antichrist. And because of that, uh, not only will this nation be awoken, or awaken, not only will this wake up a nation, the nation of Israel, but it will also, during this time, because of famine and pestilence and wars, it will shake up the heathens. Now, for those of us who are in Christ right now, we won't see this. We won't see this seven-year period. We will be tucked away in heaven, not having to deal with this time unlike any other time of famine and war and pestilence and problems. But what I want to point out is that even for us right now, as believers in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 5, 
there's this, there's this fact about the Christian life that as we experience not the great tribulation, but tribulation in this world, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. Think about the life of Jesus. Once he stuck his head up out of just being a carpenter, but then proclaiming who he was and showing the way of salvation and and healing people, doing the things of the kingdom, he experienced what? Tribulation. And so in the same way, Christians will experience tribulation in this life. And yet Romans chapter 5 says, as therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, if your hope is in something that can be shaken by tribulation, what we find is that our hope in Christ does not disappoint. So if the hope that you have right now is being shaken, it's because it's not in Christ, it's in something else. He says, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us, so that hope will never disappoint. So for the believer, uh, we don't have to worry about being shaken up because God is allowing tribulation in our lives right now to shake us up. And then we'll be tucked away, but in the meantime, for those who are still around during the Great Tribulation, the unbelieving, ungodly, godless world will be judged. And in that judgment, God's going to shake up the heathen. And then he's also going to make up the kingdom. When I say make up, it's like when you make up your room. If you go stay at a hotel and the the maid comes in after you and cleans up, they make up the room for the next guest. In the same way, Christ is coming in to clean up the world, to clean up the situation. He's going to use tribulation to get rid of those who are not and keep those who are. And so he's going to make up the kingdom, the world for the kingdom. And he's going to fumigate the world via tribulation. Now, if you think about fumigating... In the days of fumigation, they would just put a big cover over an entire building and then smoke it out, kind of like you would smoke animals out of a tree or you'd smoke bees out of their hive. And when you fumigate something, you actually send in these deadly chemicals, picture them like tribulation, in order to kill the things that are not and bring out of the things that are truly alive. But all of this, he uses tribulation to wake up a nation, to shake up the heathen, and to make up the kingdom. But first, as we said in chapter 4 and 5, he takes up his children. So as we get to this point, we realize that in last week in chapter 6, Jesus has released the scroll. He's unleashed these six seals. But if you remember, there were actually seven seals. And so he's not completely opened up the scroll yet. And what we find is after only six of the seals have been loosed, in chapter 6, verse 15, it says there that at that point, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, and then also every slave and every free man 
hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. These are those that are still left on the earth after the church is taken up. And as they are hiding themselves, they say to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. So they cry out. Every person left on the earth, they hide and they cry out to the mountains and the rocks for help. They cry out for shelter from God, not to be sheltered by God from the wrath of the Lamb. So even the ungodly at this point, the only people left on earth, recognize that the wrath of the Lamb is being unleashed, that judgment has come. They, they knew it was coming, they just didn't know when, and so they were living as if, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. They're living for pleasure. And you might say, well, even if I was still here, I wouldn't cry out to the rocks. But I want to tell you something interesting I found out this week. That during this quarantine period that we're in, there's something that's for sale that sales went through the roof. It's something that, at least on the one website I spent time on, the cost of these things, base level, was $94,000. And it was a bunker under the ground that's manufactured to keep you in a zombie apocalypse, end of the world, you know, hoard up your brown rice and your guns. And while you might laugh at that, the reality is, during the quarantine, their sales went through the roof. They cannot make these bunkers fast enough. Let me tell you, they're nice. They're actually like this culvert pipe the size of our sanctuary that has an entrance and an exit, and inside of them, there's a crank to make sure you get fresh air if the power goes out. Now, if that doesn't tell you something, I don't know what does, because you know what they do? For that base price, they bring it in with a crane, they dig you a hole, they put it in there, and then they cover it up. And to me, that's the same thing as crying out to the rocks and the mountains, hide us. And so perhaps we'd cry out to a fallout shelter instead of the mountains. But to me, it's the same thing. And so perhaps these rocks, if you think about it, in the old days, they would cry out to rocks and they'd cry out to trees that have been carved into an image. And yet we cry out to the mountains for safety, for shelter. Some of us might go spend time in the deer woods to get time with Jesus. And no doubt you can do that. But the reality is those things can't save you. So the closing question in chapter 6 of Revelation, who is able to stand? For the great day of his wrath has come, this is what they're saying, and who is able to stand? Now, it's a good question, and it leads us into chapter 7. It's not there by coincidence. It leads us. And so after these things, you know, it's funny because at the end of chapter 6, he says, who is able to stand, right? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's what God says. After these things, John writes, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. So all of a sudden, there's this parenthetical pause. There's this pause break in between the sixth seal 
and the seventh seal. And God sends out four strong angels to stop all of the winds of adversity on earth. Why? Well, he's got something he's going to do. If you're in the middle of a movie and the music is playing and all of a sudden it's silent, what happens in a movie theater? Either people get really scared and anxious, or, but no matter what, you're on the edge of your seat going, what's about to happen? It's like the pause before a tornado. Everybody always says that there's this eerie silence right before the storm hits. And so in this case, God is stopping everything. Every wind on the earth all of a sudden ceases to move completely. The winds of adversity are held back for a short time. The question is, why is he doing this? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verse 2, he says, it says, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. Now, maybe you're more mature than I am, but I'm thinking if there's an angel at each corner of the earth, I get it, the earth's not flat, it's round. And, and there are many that say, this is why you can't trust the Bible, because they're believing in these old ideas of the flat earth. But Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, says that God encircles the globe. And it said that in a day where nobody believed in a round earth. So the Bible's not saying that the earth is flat in, the, in 90 AD. What he's saying is, is that if you look at the earth, they're, they're covering the whole earth. And if you and I were to look at a map of the earth right now, we'd put it out on a flat piece of paper and we'd view it. Even the military goes to the four corners of the earth. That's how they say it. And so the idea is not that it's a flat earth. It's just that they're, they're covering their ground. And so as they go to the four corners of the earth, maybe you're more mature than I am. Uh, that was my point, that, that the angel comes up from the east, and even the angel at this distance has to get loud for everybody to hear him. So all four of these angels, in order to hear the other angel, he shouts with a loud voice and says, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Uh-oh, marks on the forehead. What does this mean? Well, if you turn with me, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Turn with me to Ezekiel in chapter 9. I cheated and put a little bookmark. But in Ezekiel, in chapter 9, there's this apocalyptic vision that Ezekiel is getting, very similar to the one in Revelation, except now we have the revealing of Jesus Christ, revealing what was going on behind the scenes. But in Ezekiel, we have in chapter 9, God calls out in the hearing of Ezekiel with a loud voice, saying, let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. Judgment is coming on this city. And one man among them was clothed with linen and had a rider's inkhorn at his side. And then they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. This is in the Holy of Holies, or excuse me, in the, in the place before the Holy of Holies. 
And the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, where it had been, to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen, who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads. And that word for mark, by the way, in the Hebrew, means literally cross. So put a cross on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. So at the time that these abominations are taking place, I believe that this is a type of the tribulation, they were called to mark or seal those who were sighing and crying over the abominations that were done within the city. So there's this sign of mourning going on. Those that are literally grieved by the things that are taking place in Jerusalem, he says, I want you to mark them with a cross on their foreheads. And to the others, he said in my hearing, go after this one through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. Judgment always, by the way, begins in the house of the Lord. And we remember this because when Jesus came into Jerusalem, where did he start? He went directly into the temple and he made a whip of cords. He knocked over the tables of the money changers. He set loose the turtle doves that were there to be as an offering. He came to judge those who were making a mockery of this house that was meant to be a house of prayer. And the city of Jerusalem is meant to be the city of the glory of God. And yet there were abominations taking place in Ezekiel. And now in the tribulation, there are abominations taking place. There's judgment by God. And at a certain point, God sends this angel to the earth saying, Okay, wait, don't harm the earth. Don't judge the sea or the trees until I have sealed my servants, those who are humble, those who are uh, grieving, those who are sighing about the abominations taking place. He looks at the heart and then he marks the man. Does that make sense? He's marking those whose hearts are prepared for the way of the Lord. He has a specific plan for those he's getting ready to mark. He's chosen them for a time such as this. And notice this, it says, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Now, have you ever heard that number before, 144,000? Maybe the J-dubs have showed up at your house, and they want you to be a part of that 144,000. They believe that they are that chosen group that's meant to go out. Here's a problem with that. When the 144,000 go out, they are what? Jewish people. They are Jewish people. They are from the tribes of Israel. And so they are not Gentiles. We can't, if you're not a, a Jew, then you cannot be a part of this number. But notice also that they are called to be evangelists, but we'll get there. So of all the tribes of the children of Israel, they're Jewish. But I also want you to notice that there's one tribe not mentioned in this list. That is the tribe of Dan. So verse 5 through 8 lists out the specific tribes. Of the tribe of Judah, 
12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. Zebulun, 12,000. Joseph, 12,000. And Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. So notice that also Manasseh is listed, which is a son of Joseph, but not Ephraim. Kind of interesting. And maybe there's a study in there for you. I want to point out that there are 12 tribes of Israel. There are 12 apostles of Jesus. One apostle betrayed Jesus. One tribe doesn't show up in this list. It's kind of interesting to me. I don't know if there's any significance to that, but what I do know is that Dan is not included. And in Genesis chapter 49, in verse 17, Jacob is blessing his children. And as he blesses his children, he speaks a word over each one of them. Maybe I should have marked this one. Genesis 49, verse 17, he speaks of Dan. Verse 16 says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel, and Dan shall be a serpent by the way. By the way, uh, serpents are not well known in the Bible for blessing. A viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backwards. So not a great blessing if you're Dan. But during this, I want you to think about this. Uh, basically, um, Judas, because of the way that he was bent and because of what he ended up doing, betraying Jesus, he became a serpent who bit at Jesus' heels. And yet, what did Jesus' heel do to the serpent? He crushed him, but his heel was bruised. And so I don't know if there's anything for you. It's just kind of a devotional thought. But I want to point out that God is always faithful to preserve a remnant and set them apart among each generation of his people. There has always been a remnant among Israel, even in their darkest days. And those especially who are hard after his purposes. And if you don't believe that, read Romans chapter 9 through 11. It has befuddled the minds of of scholars for years, and there's lots of arguments. Is God done with the nation of Israel? Is he going to continue his word? Is he going to be faithful to fulfill all of his promises? And yet what it says in Romans chapter 9 through 11 is that all Israel will be saved in some form or fashion. Uh, is that what, that's what it teaches. But the point and the purpose of God's faithfulness to Israel is that if God is faithful to Israel, then he will be faithful to the Christian. If he's not faithful to Israel, then we have no chance. Not at all. He did not make the covenant promises to us that he made to the Israelites. And so that being said, here he is fulfilling this promise by sealing 144,000, 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes. So as we continue in verse 9, we have the results these 12,000 from each tribe that lead up to 144,000, it seems to me, based on what we're getting ready to read, that they are actually Jewish 
evangelists. So where's the church? We've been tucked away in heaven. Uh, where's the rest of the world, the God-rejecting world, experiencing the wrath of God on earth? What are the ungodly doing? They're crying out for the rocks and the mountains to save them. So who can stand in the day of judgment? Well, number one, the 144,000. They are sealed so that the angels and the pestilences cannot harm them, but they're also sealed so they can go out and share the good news of salvation. And I say that because in verse 9, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Palm branches, crying out before the Lamb. Does that sound familiar? Think of the Palm Sunday we just celebrated a few weeks ago. And, and they're crying out, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet that was a precursor to the day where these people are coming from every tribe, tongue, nation, family group before the lamb. And they're responding, salvation belongs to our God. They're, it's not your God or their God, but our God. They're coming up to the throne and proclaiming this is our Savior who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, notice this, because of what these people have said, and they praise. They stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures that we described several chapters ago, they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God, saying, Amen. So be it. Blessing and glory and wisdom thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Now, one difference in this blessing, where it says, amen, blessing, glory, and wisdom, instead of riches, here they say, thanksgiving and honor. And we'll get to that in a minute. But I submit to you that these Jewish evangelists are much like the first fruits of the Jewish evangelists. Think about the Apostle Paul one of the most just zealous men that traveled. You read the book of Acts, and it's mostly him going and planting churches and sharing the gospel with Jew and Gentile alike. Think about if there were 144,000 of them combing through the entire earth in this last seven years, and yet what they do is they bring back a harvest of righteousness, this harvest of people clothed with right robes after being slain for their faith. Remember, I told you last week that to become a believer in the tribulation means you will die for your faith. We'll get to that in a, <clears throat> in a few weeks, but if you look at Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10, remember, he opened the sixth seal, and in verse 10 it says there, they cried with a loud voice, this was the martyrs, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then a white robe was given to each of them, these martyrs, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer 
until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. And so I believe that this group that has come in with salvation on their lips is who are described here. So they are clothed with robes of righteousness after being slain. And their eyes are open to who Jesus Christ really is. And because of their testimony, the angels and the elders and all of them are singing a song of salvation. But what I want to point out from verse 14 and 15 is that they are recovered, they are redeemed, but they're robbed. And, and I don't mean that to be uh, negative, but the reality is they're robbed. There's two groups that are described in the book of Revelation. There's the church in chapter 4 and 5, the bride of Christ. And there's this group that I would call the servants of Christ. Now, being a servant in the house of the Lord is better than not being involved at all. Psalm 84 verse 10 says that to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, I'd rather be a, a doorkeeper than not be in the presence of the Lord. So in chapter 4 and 5, what you notice is that the church, the bride of Christ, is taken out of and kept from tribulation. And this group is brought out of tribulation, out from. They were, they were in it. They experienced it, but they're brought out from it. Uh, the church is recognized by John, and yet what we'll find out in verse 14 and 15, the elder will say to John, who is this group? Where did these people come from? And John will say... I don't know. Surely you do. Otherwise, you wouldn't ask me the question. Uh, so they're not recognized by John. The church, the bride of Christ, is seated with God on thrones. The servant of Christ stands before the throne like a servant would. The bride of Christ has crowns on their heads to cast at Jesus' feet. The servant of Christ, they don't have any crowns in their possession. They just show up. They're at his throne. All they got is praises, which don't get me wrong, that's awesome, but I want a crown. Um, but then there's, what do they have in their hands? The bride has a harp, a musical instrument made for praise. Uh, but this group, the servants, they have palms in their hands. Still something to laud him with. Think about it. In, in these older movies where you see a king being carried on the shoulders, there's always servants surrounding them with palm branches, either for shade or for, for waving them as a fan. But then they reign with the church, the bride of Christ, gets to reign with Christ sitting on the throne, and yet this group serves night and day in the temple. So all I'm saying is that they are recovered they are saved. They are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and yet they miss out on the fullness of it. They're robbed. And so, nonetheless, I guarantee that they're thankful to be in the presence of the Lord forever. So verse 14 and 15, since I didn't read it yet, says this. Excuse me, verse 13. One of the elders answered, after all of this praise song has happened, saying to me, where are, these where are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? Or who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And John said to them, Sir, you know. And I was listening to a guy teach this this week, and he said, Any good teacher, and hopefully I do this, probably need to grow in it, asks questions that his pupils are not yet asking. 
People don't come to Jesus asking the right questions. Your kids don't come to you asking the right questions. Sometimes we have to teach one another to ask the right questions. But here, this elder comes to John and says, who are these? And where did they come from? And John, like a good student, says, I don't know. Why don't you tell me? Because obviously you do know. And he answers, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. These are the ones who are washed, have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. God with us. Verse 16, they shall ne- neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So as we close, I want you to look at this and notice the the language that's being used. What is Jesus doing for this group? He is shepherding them. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Notice the language here, and I just noticed this this morning as I was reading. They won't hunger anymore. Sheep have a shepherd who makes sure that they have food to eat. They won't thirst anymore. He leads me beside still waters. They won't uh, be struck by the sun anymore. He takes them to cool places for rest. Um, they won't be suffering from heat. He actually, a good shepherd, will lead them in the summer to higher mountains where it's cooler during the day. He, um, for the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them. Think about that language, by the way. The lamb will shepherd them. Don't, don't shepherds, she, sheep herd lambs? But the lamb will actually be the shepherd. So he plays both roles. He's the lamb who was slain before the, the foundations of the earth were laid, and yet he is the good shepherd. And so all of that to say, he will lead them to living fountains of waters, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Did you know a good shepherd, when he's taking care of his sheep, watches the eyes of his sheep to see if they're irritated by bugs. And he anoints their heads with oil to keep the irritants from making their eyes water and helping them to see better. Sheep have really good eyesight, by the way, because they're defensive animals. Yet if their eyes are watering, they can't be defended. They can't see what's going on. And so he wipes away the tears. He anoints their heads with oil so that they can see things clearer than they've ever seen them. And so as we think about this pause to praise that we've read about, I want you to think about Luke chapter 15, and I want you to turn there with me. Because it seems to me as I'm reading chapter 7 that God has taken everything he was doing in the tribulation and he puts it to a screeching halt for this purpose, to seek and to save the very last few that will be saved before all hell unleashes. The church has been taken up, and yet there's this group that God still longs to reach out to. So turn with me to Luke chapter 15, and we're going to look at all three parables that are in here very quickly. 
Luke chapter 15, verse 1. It says, All the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him teach. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and he eats with them. And so he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Notice the shepherd. He stops everything. He leaves the ninety-nine, and he goes out seeking after this lost one. When? Until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and he rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. I've often read that and thought, everyone needs to repent. And yet, if you think about the backdrop of what we've read today, the, the church is taken into heaven. They don't need to repent anymore. As Jesus is, they now are completely righteous before the throne of God. And yet, Jesus sends out a whole 144,000 to seek and to save those who are lost, those that still have the opportunity to repent. The great tribulation is a time where anyone can still repent. It's just harder. It's much less likely, and yet God is still reaching out his arm, sending out people that will risk their lives to share the gospel during that time for the one. And when, he, when the one comes to him, he puts them on his shoulders, carries them before his, his friends, the, the elders and the angels, everyone rejoicing, amen, so be it, glory to God, salvation belongs to the Lord. And Jesus, he says, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. There's this pause in his daily life as a shepherd. He leaves the 99, goes and finds those who are left. He doesn't stop until he gets every single one. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham in Genesis, he's speaking with the angel of the Lord, and he says, Lord, I, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to sound disrespectful, but are you going to judge the city if there's 50 righteous there? What's the Lord say? No. Are you going to judge the city if there's 40? And he keeps counting down. He keeps bargaining because they're Middle Easterners. That's what they do. They bargain. It's part of the conversation. But in that, it finally gets down to a very low number. And what we find is that before the city is destroyed, what does God do? He sends his angels into the city to see what's going on and to bring out Lot and his family. And yet there was one who was lost, who turned back and was turned into a pillar of salt, Lot's wife. And yet God delivers the righteous. He's able to deliver the righteous and to judge the unjust, to judge the ungodly. That's his MO. That's what he always does. Think about Noah. Judgment's coming. The rain's coming. Noah builds a boat for a hundred years so that the righteous can be lifted up above the judgment. And so we also have, in verse 8 through 10, the parable of the lost coin. What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses just one, does not light a lamp, 
Sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it. And when she found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the peace which I lost. Likewise, he says again, I say to you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then there's the parable of the lost son, the the prodigal son, we call it. The same story. There's a pause at the beginning of each one of these stories where God stops everything. And there's a pause at the end of each one of these stories where God stops everything to celebrate. And I want to point out that the one here that he's stopping everything to save is someone that before the tribulation, their attitude was, I don't need Jesus. Only fools follow Jesus. And yet what God does is he loves that person. That person that's rejected him their entire life. That person, we would say, of course, now you want me. Look at all the problems in the earth. But what God says, I'm glad that you finally came to your senses. I'm gl- you were blind and now you're seeing it for reality. Now you're crying out for deliverance. It took not only tribulation, but it took my evangelist. But he's okay with that. Today is the day of salvation for whosoever wills to come. He doesn't withhold it for anybody who humbles themselves. So my question is, are you one of the ones that are yet to humble yourself? My question also is, are you willing to be one of these evangelists? We're not going to be the 144,000 as believers. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that we have already been sent out The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Therefore, cry out to the Lord of the harvest. Pray for opportunities. The day of salvation is here. This window is closing. Who in your life needs delivered so that when they get to the end of the age, they don't have to go through tribulation? Or when they get to the end of the age, they get in tribulation, what are they going to remember that you told them about Jesus? So, Last week or the week before, my wife uh, is making breakfast for us. It's a rainy day, and I'm out on a, a walk with my daughter, and I get back, and the house smells wonderful. She's making Pillsbury uh, cinnamon rolls, except these Pillsbury cinnamon rolls don't just have icing on them. They have orange-flavored icing, and before you say that sounds horrible, everybody loves creamsicle. Come on. But even if you don't, what I'm telling you is that for me, I was like, this sounds awesome, and it smells awesome. Give me, yes, I ate five, I'm confessing. I ate five of them. Seven people in the house, and I ate five of them. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm not proud of myself, but it was so good. Each one of them, the next one. So she's telling me while while she made them, she goes, oh, yeah, my friend Mallory told me about these. Now, Mallory's been out of state for several years. And we've known her since we've been married. And I'm like, we've never eaten these cinnamon rolls while we've been married. Almost nine years. And so I'm going, "Uh, you've known about this and you've never told me? Have you been making them and eating them by yourself? Like, why don't I get it? I've never had these. You've known about them, but you haven't told me. Now, I'm saying that and we're laughing about it. But I wonder how many of our friends and family and people that we know and see all the time 
will have that same thought if they get to know the fact that the only way to be saved is Jesus and they get to tribulation or they go through tribulation and we were holding out on them. We didn't give them the opportunity to have the best cinnamon rolls that could exist. And I say that as somebody that I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Um, we don't know how many days are promised to each person in our life. And we don't know when the end is coming. He, Jesus even said that the, the Son of Man doesn't even know, only the angels in heaven, when Jesus is returning. And then the door is shut. No more opportunity to jump on the ark. And so I just want to take a point uh, to pause and say, um, are you sharing creamsicle cinnamon rolls with your friends? Are you sharing the best thing that's ever happened to humanity with your friends and your family? Uh, are there people in your life that will see the other side of eternity and you didn't tell them about the best news ever? So Lord Jesus, I just confess before my brothers and sisters that there are many times that I'm more interested in telling my friends and the people around me about the things that don't matter, and yet um, I'm holding out. Jesus, you died on the cross so that all men might be saved, and yet uh, the laborers are few and the harvest is plenty. We're living in a time where people's hope has been destroyed because things that they trust in are being dwindled away, and yet they're getting ready to come back, possibly. Help us in this time where the iron is hot to strike and tell them about the only hope that cannot be taken from us, the only foundation that cannot be shaken, the only hope for deliverance from the judgment that is to come, the wrath of the Lamb. Lord Jesus, thank you for doing your part to take the wrath upon your own shoulders so that we don't have to experience it. Thank you for making a way so that we can be redeemed and saved uh, and have our sin washed away and spend eternity with you. Help us to be about sharing that truth with the world. So Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your willingness to leave the 99 and come for the one. Thank you that I get to be one of those one that you left the 99 to save me. And I pray that many sons would come to glory, that many daughters would have their eyes open. Lord, that we would be about your kingdom and bringing many sons and daughters to glory. So Jesus, thank you for this revealing of your heart through the pen of John and through Luke. And Lord, thank you for your plan for Israel. Thank you for the, the way that even in the tribulation, you're going to send out more folks to seek and to save that which is lost. Lord, prepare our hearts. Help us to be about your business. In Jesus' name, amen.